Okay, got it. Ready? <clears throat> You're listening to Paul Elmore. Paul Elmore. <laughs> <laughs> Tonight, what to do when you're angry at or doubting God. That has been an incredible common theme I've seen amongst a lot of my clients, a lot of individuals I've worked with. They're going, I am pissed off. I am frustrated. I'm disappointed. I'm confused. I am angry at God. I have all these feelings and I don't know what to do with them. And I think that there is viable alternatives and, and options of, of how to move through those strong feelings which always aren't labeled as pleasant or positive. But I want to do a quick little just pause before we jump into this. And I was told it would be helpful to do some reiterating real quick on the three worldviews. What is the um, first worldview um, that is represented by football? Pre-modern. Uh, modern is represented by what? Chess. And then postmodern is represented by? Calvin Ball. Look at this. The common language. This is great. And if you're playing Calvin Ball and I say Ollie Wally Pollywog, you guys respond back with? Yes, that is fantastic. If you learned one thing, you learned that. I'm proud of that. That's wonderful. Ump, bump, fizz. Do that at church. It's just going to wig out the people next to you. It's going to be really fun. That's, wow, that blesses my heart. We can close in prayer. Um, <laughs> Oh, that's good. Um, clarification on the three worldviews and what I want to make sure you walk away with. What is the one area in the three worldviews we are focusing on primarily? What does those three areas measure? Where you find truth. So I'd want it to be very clear right now. I am not advocating that we go back and live a pre-modern life across the board. There are many, many, many things about pre-modern world that I would never want to have replicated ever again in lots and lots of areas. But when it comes to the area of truth and finding objective truth, that time period in general was based upon an objective truth and people conformed their lives to it. Are we clear? Can I clarify that any more? There are many, many things about the pre-modern world I would not want to go back to. There's many things in the modern world I'd want to go back to. Have you seen the medical conditions, early modern stuff, the bleeding people and leeches and sketchy, sketchy stuff? And then, you know, they grew up. And so, again, every era, era has its positive um, things for our life. Hopefully you've heard me say that in the last couple of weeks. Postmodernism has some wonderful, wonderful things in the world of empathy and validation and understanding and clarity and relational components that a lot of modern, even pre-modern, just never really gave language to or, or credence to. So I'm only focusing on one area, and that is the area of where do we find our source of truth? Any questions or further clarification around that? Yes, please. Real loud. Pre-modern, what time era? Um, the, the time era is um, 1500s, again, give or take, there's probably about a 50, 60, 100 year gap in there. Um, but it is, um, most of the research I've done shows right around the time of Galileo is when he's the guy who 
kind of came to the forefront challenging the church, which held truth. The Roman Catholic Church held truth even about everything, not just biblical or spiritual things, but even scientific things, relational things, um, governmental things. The church had control over pretty much everything. And so when Galileo came and said, I got some problem with the math. The math shows that the earth is not the center of the universe. The sun is. And because he challenged the church's teaching on that and actually supported a Copernican, Copernicus kind of came up with the idea of that, um, the church um, excommunicated him and put him under house arrest. So kind of that, again, he's not the only time error that's kicking that into, into being, but that's kind of a, a focal point, kind of that, that apex of, of when that started to shift. Because at that point, Truth is now measurable. Can it be measured? Does the math line up? What does science say? How do we gather facts? How do we gather truth? And truth was now shifted to, well, what do the scholars say? What do the scientists say? It's no longer the church. It's no longer scripture. It's, it's the physical world. So that's kind of the, uh, a rough time era shift in that. Any other questions on that? And then we'll keep moving forward. Wonderful. Is this making sense? Are you guys starting to notice this throughout lots of other places, movies and music and people's speeches and um, you're hearing language which now goes, oh wait, that right there sounds very postmodernist. And where do they find their source of truth? And again, what really encourages me in this is if you have two people who are talking and one person is saying, is, is arguing their point from a postmodern subjective Calvin Ball kind of um, idea of here's how the rules work, and you're arguing it from either a modern or a pre-modern, you literally are talking different languages, and it's like nothing lines up here until so there isn't productive conversation. I want there to be productive conversation because with conversation comes community, comes connection, co comes wrestling. It's a striving to find out how do we live, how do we apply this truth, but you hear a lot of people in the media and in other places which are just kind of making these general uh, comments about everybody and people are making these general comments about everybody over here and they're not talking the same language. Once we agree on the terms, now we can have more productive conversation. And my hope is a lot of the stuff that's wrestling with here and I know that you guys are going home possibly with more questions than answers Sometimes that's good, sometimes that's frustrating, but I want you to be chewing and wrestling and asking and questioning and trying to figure this out for yourself. And I want this to continue on again throughout the year in refuge here. So when you hear someone state, this is, this is truth, you get to go, okay, well, postmodern, pre-modern, modern, where are they coming from? Okay, I understand their worldview. And then how do we play that into the conversation? It gives you a, 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 a wiser, more responsible way to deal with that information. And hopefully, again, find peace, find resolution, find hope. That's what I want you to walk away with the most from this entire series is hope. Might not give you answers, but I want you to have hope. Isn't that strange? You might be able to have hope without having answers. That's weird, but it's true. So I want you to have that. All right, if there's no more questions, what to do when you're angry at or doubting God? It is understandable to be angry at God when we don't get what we want. That's a very normal, very human response to disappointment, to frustration, all of those things. 
let's jump right in and we're going to watch a clip here which kind of walks, walks you through the progression of someone who gets very angry at God. Mozart. I can't think of a time when I didn't know his name. I was still playing childish games when he was playing music for kings and emperors. Even the Pope in Rome. I admit I was jealous when I heard the tales they told about him. Not of the brilliant little prodigy, but of his father, who had taught him everything. My father did not care for music. When I told him how I wished I could be like Mozart, he would say, Why? Do you want to be a trained monkey? Would you like me to drag you around Europe doing tricks like a circus freak? <laughs> How could I tell him what music meant to me? While my father prayed earnestly to God to protect commerce, I would offer up secretly the proudest prayer a boy could think of. Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be celebrated myself. Make me famous through the world, dear God. Make me immortal. After I die, let people speak my name forever with love for what I wrote. In return, I will give you my chastity and my industry, my deepest humility, every hour of my life. And do you know what happened? A miracle. <coughs> Francesco! 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 Che succede? Well, there it is. Good. Your Majesty, I hope you won't find it improper, but I've written a little march of welcome in his honor. What a charming idea, court composer. May I see? Just a, just a trifle, of course. May I try it? Majesty. Let's have some fun. Honor, sire. Bring in Herr Mozart, please. But slowly, slowly. I need a minute to practice.
Excellent. Very good. Very good, Majesty. Tempo. Up. Lightly, then strongly. The march, Majesty. March. Again. if you want. It's already here in my head. What? On one hearing only? I think so, sire. Yes. Show us. you choose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy, and give me for reward only the ability to recognize the incarnation. Because you are unjust. Unfair. Unkind. I will block you. I swear it. I will hinder and harm your creature on earth. As far as I am able, I will ruin your incarnation.
What movie is that? How many has, have not seen Amadeus? Holy smokes. Required homework again, okay? Cinematic homework. Truly a wonderful movie. Most people think it's about Mozart and his rivalry. Actually, that's Salieri. Uh, Salieri's rivalry with Mozart. Mostly it's fictitious. It's not actual history. But it's not about Mozart. What's it about? Say it again. Him being angry at God. Here's this little kid who says, I want nothing more than to learn music and to glorify you. I'll give you my chastity. I'll give you my industry. I'll give you anything. Just let me play. And then a miracle happens. His father, who's keeping him from learning music, dies. Ha! Huh? Miracle. And then he learns music. And then this person, Mozart, again, throughout the movie, he, Mozart is crude. He's rude. He's womanizing. He's, he's not a pleasant person. But man, can he play, and he can play good. And so Salieri becomes profoundly jealous of, of this idea of why, why won't you give me what I want? I want to be that good. I want to be that knowledgeable. And so he, become, he, he makes enemies, not of Mozart, but of whom? God. Profoundly. He's takes the crucifix off the wall and says, I will do everything I can to block your, your, your instrument. It's now my goal. And then the rest of the movie is about that. I can't believe so many of you have never seen Amadeus. It, yes, you have to go back a few years. 90s even, maybe. 80s? Yeah. She said it, not me. Some of you weren't born yet, okay? That's her fault, not me. There you go, see? Yeah, wonderful, wonderful movie. Truly, good family movie night. Please go watch it. Wonderful music, great story. Um, classic. I'm sorry? Yeah. Because, because, it wasn't according to his terms. Salieri says, this is how I expect my life to be. God, give me this gift, but give it according to what I want. So in essence, what worldview is he holding? Well, no. Very good. He's postmodern. I need to make God conform to what I think is right. And if God doesn't do that, I have every right to be angry and to make enemies. Um, again, it's a fictitious story. Some of um, Salieri, the real Salieri, the guy, um, Franz Liszt was a student, Schubert, and some guy named Beethoven, okay? All were students of Salieri. Anyone tell me where that line, Beethoven, what movie is that from? Don't say anything. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, very good. Yeah, we should just watch movies on Monday night. That'd be a lot better. Yeah, that could be, we, we do a lot of that anyway. <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, pain is real. Frustration is normal. Confusion is common. When life doesn't work the way that you want it to work, all of those emotions are legitimate. We are not negating the, the human component of disappointment and frustration and confusion and hurt. All of that is real. 
Okay, I want you to hear that. I'm not, I'm not making that go away. It's also, you ask the questions, what's wrong with wanting to be happy? Can't I be a Christian and be happy? Paul, you've been talking for four weeks here, and kind of this doom and gloom of the world's painful and terrible things going to happen, and if you're a believer, you're stuck like Chuck, and that's not what I'm saying. But So the question is, what's wrong with wanting to be happy? What's wrong with wanting to avoid pain? What's wrong with trying to be comfortable and content, even as a believer? And my answer is absolutely nothing is wrong with it unless, unless, unless it becomes the ultimate thing in your life. As human beings, it's okay to desire happiness, contentment, comfort. That's not a terrible thing. But when it becomes the ultimate thing and something you demand, something that you say, unless everything lines up and gives me what I want according to my way, that's when you will end up with much more frustration, much more hurt, much deeper disappointed expectations. And when anything, anything, anything becomes the ultimate thing in your life, you've now taken that thing out of the place of God and put it in as your God. So happiness is now my God. For some people, it's power. For some people, it's money. For some people, it's their spouse or their children. For some people... It's sex. For some people, it's cocaine. For some people, it is politics. I mean, whatever becomes the ultimate thing in your life now has hold over you and power over you. And again, this whole series is talking about this concept of postmodernism and this idea that my truth, my way, the world should be according to what I deem it to be. And that's why there's profound hurt and pain and frustration because that's not how the world actually works. We got to, see Sol, got to see Solieri kind of work through that. There's three options. When we get angry at God, there are three primary ways we move through that. Number one is, whoops, come on. Ha ha. I'm going to love these buttons. Uh, option number one, we make enemies of God. That's what we just saw. Okay, I don't need to show that again. Solieri very clearly says, we are now enemies. I am, I'm not sure he's going to submit to God at that moment. He's not going to say, how do you want me to live, Lord? And I will conform myself to what you say. You don't do that to your enemy. You go, I am going to do everything I can to be against you. Whatever you do, even if I agree with it, I'm going to take the exact opposite stance because I will not agree with you. I will not be with you. You make enemies of God. Number two, we challenge or try to take control from God. Challenging God is a little different than enemies. It's kind of like saying, oh, well, instead of giving an example, let's watch an example. This is more fun. This one might be a little bit more familiar, I hope. Which one is this? Forrest Gump. Who's not seen Forrest Gump?
you doing here? Well, thought I'd try out my sea legs. Well, you ain't got no legs, Lieutenant Dane. Yes, I know that. You wrote me a letter, you idiot. Well, well, Captain Forrest Gump. I had to see this for myself. <laughs> and I told you if you were ever a shrimp boat captain, that I'd be your first mate. Well, here I am. I am a man of my word. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but don't you be thinking that I'm gonna be calling you sir. No, sir. It's my boat. Lieutenant Dane. Okay, so I was wrong. Well, how are we gonna find them? Well, maybe you should just pray for shrimp. So I went to church every Sunday. Sometimes Lieutenant Dane came too, though I think he left the praying up to me. It's funny Lieutenant Dan said that, because right then, God showed up. Now me, I was scared, but Lieutenant Dan, he was mad. Would you say that's um, challenging God? <laughs> yeah, it might be a little crazy. Can anyone tell me why Lieutenant Dan was so mad? You watch Forrest Gump and you start talking that way. You just notice that happens? For about a day and a half, I just talk that way. My kids laugh at me. Why was Lieutenant Dan so mad? Yes, but not just because he lost his legs. Why else? 
He should have died in the war because in every great war, he's had an ancestor who's died in that war, and that was his destiny. That's what he believed. I'm supposed to die in this war. And so in Vietnam, when he gets hit and his legs are damaged beyond repair, who, who pulls him out of there? Forrest Gump, run, Forrest, run. He's running and something jumps up and bites him. Yeah, you guys, more of you have seen this movie, so they make more sense in the references. But Lieutenant Dan says, I'm going to challenge God right now. You and me, let's go. I am no longer waiting. You're going to try to take me. And it's almost like, bring it on. Bring on more trouble. Bring on more struggle. Even if I'm hurting, even if I don't like it, bring it on because you are not going to beat me. It's not the same as making an enemy of God. It's, 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 it's a challenging of God. It's like, I am as strong as you. That would probably be the better way of putting it. I'm as strong as you, God. Let's see who's going to break first. I'm not so sure that's a great strategy. I'm not so sure that that would be a long-term, sustainable way to move through life. But some people actually do that. They, they say, I'm not going to submit to God. God, you've got to prove yourself to me. Prove yourself to me. I'm going to challenge you. Yeah. Would you say that that is wrestling like Jacob? Um, you could spin it that way, but, but there's a way to wrestle and still have an understanding of appropriate relationship. That makes sense? Um, and then there's, there are people who go, well, there's people who go, I'm going to challenge the tax code, and I'm not going to pay taxes because I believe a constitutional right not to pay taxes that is a, I don't have to submit to the government. And they're challenging and they're willing to lawsuit and all those kinds of, because they have a very narrow, very um, unique perspective of how to interpret laws and all those kinds of things. They are at enemies. They're, 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 they are at, at odds with who they are challenging. And then there is challenging, which says, I understand that you still have authority over me, but I have a hard time with it and I want to wrestle with it. So it's a heart condition. But... I love it when people do a perfect segue because there's a number three. We can draw close, and what's the word there? Wrestle. Thank you so much. Man, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. Wrestling to work it out with God. But what does the model, what does that actually look like? Are we allowed to wrestle with God? Does that, can we do that and still be good Christians? Can we do that and still be good believers? Can we do that before we're a believer? Is that okay to do? Do you think God can handle that? The closest example I have to kind of what that looks like is actually in the parent-child relationship. Human, okay, me as a parent, and the way I treat my children, I'm given the opportunity to raise and love and care for my children, and that is a microcosm. That is a, a miniature representation of a heavenly relationship. Scripture actually has several of those. Do you know what another one is? Where what we do here on earth is actually a representation of what happens this way, vertically, between us and God. What's another example of that? Marriage. Ma marriage. Very, very good. We as husbands are called to love our brides as Christ loved the church. In Scripture, Christ is called the bridegroom. The church, us, the community, are called his bride. 
And again, lots of marital language, lots of familial language, all those kinds of things. And so parenting is probably the closest representation to this, this heavenly relationship that we have. Um, again, Scripture is written in familial terms for a reason. It's not contractual. Contract is... I will execute this behavior, this behavior, this behavior, and once I have fulfilled those terms, you now need to reciprocate with this behavior and this behavior and this behavior. And if we agree on those terms and we negotiate that out, fine, we both sign on the dotted line and we have entered into an agreement. A lot of people who don't understand scripture actually apply that model to their relationship with God. Imagine going into a marriage that way. Honey, I will love you if... You meet these 19 terms, and if any one, if any time one of those terms are broken or you don't follow through, I now have justifiable reason and cause to take these actions over here, and I can get out of the marriage, I can react in a certain way, you need to compensate me in some other way. Isn't that a warm, fuzzy way of relating to your spouse? Hmm, that's just nice. Doesn't work out that way. Relationship has different rules than contractual. Drawing close, what does that actually look like? So we can either make enemies of God, we can challenge God, or we can draw close and wrestle with God. Parents have a tremendous, tremendous responsibility to reflect God's character, especially when their children are angry. Some of you aren't parents in here yet, but for those who are, moms and dads, we have a tremendous responsibility to reflect God's character, no more so important than when our children are really, really angry at us. Now, unfortunately, some parents have been taught that um, if their kids are mad, they get to be mad back. My daughter, Michael is her name, she... I'm not even sure how long ago, years ago, she um, came up the stairs because I had told her it's time to get up in the morning. It's no longer time to sleep in. It's a Saturday and it's about 10 o'clock. And so I said, kiddo, it's time to get up and kind of help contribute around the house and get some chores done and all those things. And I don't know, she was not in a particularly kind mood at that moment. And so she came up the stairs and I'm sitting on the couch and she turns and she looks at me and she goes, dad, I don't like you right now. And it wasn't one of those joking little things. She meant it. She was not happy with me. And I stood up and I walked over to her and I said, that's okay. You don't have to like me right now. I still love you. And I put my arms around her. And she did one of those, I am not going to accept this. You can't, you, you're not going to win. Kind of a little challenging thing going on there, huh? I am not going to accept this. If you have a good relationship built with your daughter, even if she's in a bad mood for that moment, it doesn't take long for her to do one of these, fine, and she hugs me back. And we're able to get connected again. It takes an extra few minutes. But if I was waiting for her to say, Dad, I love you very much, and then I can respond back with, oh, good, I'm glad you love me, I will respond contractually back with you with the obligatory, I love you too, that gets messed up. Parents... We have a tremendous responsibility to reflect God's character, especially when our kiddos are angry. Fathers are called to love like God does, which is unconditionally. I've had my kids mad at me. They've yelled at me. 
They've called me names. I, I have the responsibility. I want, to hear very, very, want you to hear very clearly because I know some of you did not grow up in homes where this rule applied because if you talked back to dad, all hell broke loose. In fact, you learned very, very early not even to consider that. That's not even an option. You have to hide, adjust, conform, numb, become invisible, because you know if you do anything that challenges dad, dad's going to come down on you. But I want, I want you to hear, as kids, it is your parents' responsibility to offer love to you unconditionally, regardless of the attitude you have towards them. Now again, we're not, we're not talking you accept behavior, but you offer love. And that, that is lost in this world. It's a shame, but that's not often taught. Oftentimes fear is used as a teaching tool. And I want you to hear from me. And I will take a stand. This is not a postmodern approach. It is wrong to parent using fear as a legitimate model. Fear never, ever, ever produces healthy growth and change. In fact, oops, children in a state of fear are not capable of learning new concepts trying to be taught to them. I, I don't know what it is about homework, but homework and fear and scary dads tend to have a common theme because I've heard it from multiple clients that algebra homework at the kitchen table trying to learn that was a terrifying experience because dad, who didn't understand how to teach algebra, would come in and try to help daughter or son learn algebra because they're legitimately struggling with it. Because they didn't get it right away, anger would show up within dad. And the minute that happens, kids aren't learning about algebra anymore. Learning algebra when you're in a fearful state is impossible. Instead, what you tend to learn is um, self-protective strategies. So a lot of kids go, Okay, I got it. I understand that concept. Yep, I can do all my homework on my own. Thanks, Dad. Appreciate your help. And he can go back to doing whatever he's doing. And the kid's still going, I have no idea X plus Y equals 26. I have no idea what to do with that. But I have learned a lesson. Don't ask Dad. Because Dad's regulation of his emotional response. And again, I'm not picking on just fathers, but I, I've heard this theme primarily coming from the, the paternal side. Moms can be just as scary sometimes. And again, that's, that's tragic, that's scary. But some of you might, might not have ever heard that fear is not a legitimate teaching tool. It never has been. And I want you to hear that very clearly from me. Fear is not legitimate. Last week, last week, so Saturday before last Monday, my youngest son and I were driving in our, we have a 93 little Honda Del Sol tops off, a little fun little two-seater car. We named it Tracy. Our little blue car's name is Tracy. One of my other sons named it. Um, and my son Isaac, who's 13, and I, I was had gone and picked him up from a friend's house, and we were driving home. And as we were driving down this rural street, just in my neighborhood, a white SUV is coming towards us. And as I see him driving towards us, I see a hand come out of the passenger window with a full plastic cup from Starbucks. And it's not one of those little disposable cups, you know, that you just get with ice water in it. It's one of the hard plastic cups 
that, that are like solid. And this guy in the passenger seat chucks it over the car and it comes flying over and it lands smack dab in the middle of my windshield. What do you think I'm feeling at that moment? Joy. Not joy, Nikki. Aunt, wrong, thanks for playing. Appreciate that. <laughs> the instantaneous physiological reaction that I had within my body of both self-protection and anger was instantaneous. And so, being in a little fast sports car, I whip it around really, really fast, and I hit the gas, and I go after them. By the time I get this thing turned around, they've already taken a side street into some neighborhoods, and, and I wish I would have seen it, because I could have caught up to them, but I, I missed that they had turned, so I went past it, and my son, Isaac, he goes, Dad, they turned back there. Great. Hit the brakes, spin it around, power slide around, come back around, take a right, and head into the neighborhood. I'm looking for these people because I am ticked off. I, I want justice. I demand them to be held accountable for what they have done. And so I'm driving around the neighborhood looking for them, looking for them, can't find them anywhere. Take a side street, turn around, come down this one, and I'm waiting there to turn left, and they drive right in front of me. Yes, got them. I pull in behind them. And get out my phone, hit record. And so I'm driving, you know, I'm trying, to, trying to record them. My windows are down, and I'm going, I know who you are. I got your license plate. I got you. And so they take off, and they turn left, and they start heading up the streets, and I stay right on their tail. What do you think my son is feeling in the midst of that experience? He might die. Can you put more words to that? Not hungry. Hey. <laughs> He might die. He might die because even though you're having a reaction of mostly fear for your son, then protect him in anger because you, you have your windshield smashed and they've endangered your child and yourself. Yep. You're now putting him in even more danger by whipping around corners and trying to yeah. people who already don't have the good sense to stop and apologize. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. He think he might die. I don't think that's too far off. What else do you think he's feeling? Yes. He's feeling vulnerable. Yep. What if they have a gun? What if, what if they're armed and we're, we're vulnerable? What am I going to do when I catch them? <laughs> Don't say anything. I'm tough. <laughs> yeah. He might be thinking of his dad's a badass. He might be thinking dad's a badass. Yeah. This is my new favorite guy right here, okay? <laughs> What's your name again? Brooks. Brooks. Thank you. Brooks is right. Let's close in prayer again. My 13-year-old son has a sensitive heart. Um, it's one of the things I love about him the most. And as we're driving, he's saying one word over and over and over. Dad, dad, dad. And it's ramping up. And he was okay when we didn't know where they were. When we found them, he had a different, it was panic. Dad, dad. And now I'm stuck. Now I'm conflicted because I have two choices in front of me. I can follow these guys and hold them accountable, or I can care for my son's heart and let them go. Me as a man, me as a man says, 
I don't want these guys to get away with it. Me as a father says, I need to do something to protect my son's heart. And so we follow them until we get to the street where I have to turn left to go to my house. And I tell him, son, we're going to let him go. We're going to go home. And I let them go away. And I have no idea who they are. And there's nothing I can do about it. And I get absolutely no justice. But I do get to protect my son's heart. And out of the two, hands down across the board, I will always, always choose my son's heart. It took me probably an hour for my body physiologically to calm down. I came in and I was ramped up and I told my wife about it. I told her what I want to do. And here's a picture of these idiots who did this to my car. And, and, and the chemical bath that my brain was dancing in at the moment, um, it literally takes about an hour for those chemicals to wash through your system until you come back to rational thought. And... I suspect that some of you know what that looks like within your own parental experiences watching your parents respond to whatever situation. You can watch them almost lose their mind with frustration, hurt, anger, whatever that emotional hijacking is of them. And again, I want you to hear from me that it is more appropriate, it is healthier, it is wiser to choose the emotional health and state of your son or your daughter than getting justice. They are precious. They always are and they always will be. And as a father, it's my responsibility to, to have the presence of mind to know what to do with some of that, to make the right choice in that moment. I also want you to hear that even when we are mad, scared, confused, God never uses fear to try to teach us, even when we're mad at him, because he's the perfect parent. He never, ever, ever wants to put you into a place that feels unsafe. Now, with my children, I will do things that make them uncomfortable, but I never want to do things that make them feel unsafe. I'll discipline my kids all day long because I want them to be healthy. I want them to, to be raised with appropriate boundaries and, and take responsibility for their lives, and so I'll discipline them appropriately. But I will never, ever use fear to try to get them to conform or obey or do what I want because fear again, turns off that learning center of their brain and kicks in the self-protective. And I'm going to suggest that God does the same things to us. We learn best when we are safe but uncomfortable. We learn best when we are safe but uncomfortable. That's why when I was working up on the challenge course, we used things called harnesses and climbing ropes and gris-gris and shear reduction devices and aircraft steel, aircraft cable, and we would put people in all that safety equipment and put them 30, 40 feet in the air and then tell them, hey, jump off. I got the rope. I'm holding you. And that's when you hear colorful language come back at you because... You can know that you are safe, but you feel uncomfortable. And that takes a lot to step off a platform like that and learn those kinds of things. But without the safety equipment, it would be actually um, um, irresponsible of me to put anyone into that state 30, 40 feet up in the air and say, hey, jump off, I got you. 
I'll catch you. It doesn't work. You tend not to learn when you're dead. So here's my, here's my theory. Here is my, um, here's the premise I want to run by you guys. If earthly parenting tends to be the closest reflection we have to heavenly parenting, when we have a heavenly father and we are his children, then is it possible that the way that we work through earthly conflict from parent and child can give us the same lessons or the same concepts of how we work through when we're mad at our heavenly parent. Does that make sense? Can, can the same um, lessons, can the same things apply? That's my theory. We'll see if it works out or not. And the most common sense way that I can think of to kind of approach this was to have a conversation between a parent and a child. It just happens that I have a child of mine here with me, and she's agreed to come, um, I'm not sure of the word, air our dirty laundry, um, talk about our relationship, and she's actually willing to field some questions from you about what that looks like. I have some questions kind of prompt the conversation, but I want you to hear from a a child's perspective, what our, I always talk from my perspective, and I, I'm going to give my daughter, come on up, kiddo, this is my daughter, Michael, everybody, she's, um, she's my firstborn, she's fantastic, she's 21, she's heading off to England um, in 40-something days, 43. 43 days, Ben showed you how that works, so you can do something with that, um, and This might come as a shock, but my daughter and I have had fights, okay? My daughter and I have been mad at each other at times, and her wisdom, her experience, her maturity, I think you can learn a lot more from her than from me. So I want to give her a chance to kind of talk through some of this together. Is that okay? Sure. Be nice. Um, what does it feel like when you and I are not connected or even worse, when we're mad at each other? What does it feel like for you? It's really hard. Um, we have a really good relationship, and so when we're not connected, I feel um, alone, and I feel um, not validated, and... Um, I had another really good word for it earlier today. I can't remember what word I had. Um, just like things are unfair. There you go. Yeah. It's unfair. Um, mm hmm Huh. When you're mad at me. Yeah. Yes. Did you know that I have feelings too? No, I didn't know that. <laughs> Is that possible? Dads, yeah, dads aren't supposed to have feelings. Yes, I knew that. I know that. When you were mad at me, um, there is this tension, uh, again, a physiological tension of things aren't right, and I crave, I desire to have things um, fixed, to have things um, clarified, to have that tension removed, 
um, so that we can be connected again. You and I get to experience a lot of connect, more connection than disconnection. Yeah. And it, I, I long for it as a dad. It's like you're distant from me now and I want you to come back as mm -hmm. soon as possible. Mm -hmm. But when you're mad at me, how long can we sit in that tension? How long, how long, what's kind of the longest the record we've held? I think the longest would probably only be, well, I say only, but it feels longer. Like maybe three days. Yeah. Two or three, maybe four stretching it. Right. And that's mostly circumstantial. What do you mean circumstantial? Um, we have a fight, something happens, we're angry at each other and he has to go to work. And as soon as he gets home, I have to go to work. And then as soon as I get home, we go to bed. Yep. And then it goes for another couple of days. So it's kind of a, we just can't there's get just in the, no time. We can't to, get in the same zip code yeah. to work it out. Yeah. And, and when that time frame gets prolonged, when it gets mm -hmm. stretched out, again, what does that feel like? How long, how long can you sit in that before you want something to change? A day. Maybe. Usually by overnight, like if we have a fight during the day, by the next morning I'm ready to be out of it. I'm ready to fix things. I'm ready to get back to normal. Yeah. So what happens if I, before I ask the question, um, again, my feelings in the midst of that is, again, that longing that something is not right and, and I want to get that connection and it gets frustrating with just circumstances that we can't get in the same zip code or, or, or we want to get connected and it just circumstances get in the way of that. So there's that longing, there's that, there's that ache for it and it just doesn't happen. Now what happens when I do approach you and you're not ready to be nice to me yet? Has that ever happened? Many times, <laughs> yes. No, 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 happens. not that many times. <laughs> well. Yeah. Um, when that happens, it's very hard for me to accept his offering of peace. It's very hard for me to go, yes, okay, I'm ready to listen, because I'm not ready to listen. I am angry, and I feel justified in my anger, and it's like, well, everything that I'm feeling is okay and is right and is a reason for it, and I'm not ready to be done with that yet, and I'm just, you know, don't come near me. I don't want anything to do with you right now. And when I do approach you and I don't let you out of that. <laughs> it's so hard. It is, it's hard and it's wonderful at the same time because in that moment when I am angry and my heart is just not wanting to give up this anger, it's like, oh, and I just can't, I can't unclench. I'm stuck in this position of anger and when he a lot of the times he'll come up and just hold me, kind of like what you said earlier, and, and I'm, don't touch me, don't touch me, don't touch me, is, is what it is, but after a while, I just, I, my, I can't hold it anymore. My body, my heart cannot hold it anymore, and it's, I just get into this frame of, okay, I'm ready to be done with it. I'm ready to let go of this and be done holding on to it anymore, yeah. and I'm ready to move forward I'm ready to get past this and to connect again a lot of times when I feel her in that moment when I can tell that she hasn't softened towards me I very intentionally try to stay in proximity without poking at her yeah. that actually tends to push her away even further mm -hmm. but I want her to know that I am receptive that I am open and that when she is ready to soften I will be there for her 
It's not a conditional, get your head on straight, little girl, and suck it up, and then come to me. It's not a, it's not a conditional kind of thing. It's an it's a invitation of, I'm, I'm heartbroken that we have this distance at the moment, and I know that it's not safe, or it's not doesn't feel right yet, and, and you can take some time in that, and yet you can still come. You can still be here with me. Um, what is something I can do that is helpful beyond that when we are disconnected? Me as a dad, what can I do that is helpful or beneficial when you're angry at me? Um, a lot of the times when you just sit and listen and it's like I have, I'm angry, I have all these feelings and I know you have your own reasons and I know you have your own justification for doing what you did, but right now I would need that to be put aside and I need you to just listen and validate what I'm feeling and I'm hurt and I need you to understand that. Um, and then another thing is I don't like it when you make jokes. Yeah. There's been times when I've been legitimately angry about things and Shoot. he doesn't take it seriously and he tries to joke it off and that does not work at all. It makes that it makes it worse. He's <laughs> I can remember one time I don't even remember the situation now, but I remember one time um, I was just super upset about something and I'm trying to communicate this to, to him and he just keeps making jokes and I finally just break. I'm like, you're not getting it. I don't like this. You're not helping. And he gets it in that point. At that, that point, he, he gets it. I clue it. in. Yeah, he finally figures it out. I am a counselor. Out. I pick up on these, <laughs> these subtle signs. After a long while. Years of training, two master's degrees. <laughs> Probably harder for you guys. <laughs> But when he finally got it, um, he doesn't do it often now. Like, he's, he's learned from that. And there's not very many times when he gets it. And usually, if he does start to joke around, it's like, Dad, I'm serious. And he's like, okay. And then moves on into, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to listen. I can hear you. And, and he's able to do that. Yeah, a lot of times, parents quickly jump to the, before we get things cleared up between the two of us, I need to make sure you learn the lesson. I need to make sure you understand what you did wrong. I need to make sure that you are, you are going to accept what I'm trying to teach you. And the way I use that is skip the teachable moment. Mm -hmm. Because if she's not feeling safe at the moment, it doesn't matter what I'm trying to teach her. It's not going to sink in. We have to deal with the emotions. We have to validate that first. We have to care for her heart first. And then once her heart is taken care of, I'll usually even wait a day or two because in that moment, it's more about the connection. It's more about the intimacy. It's more about the relationship rather than the lesson. Mm -hmm. I do come back to the lesson because I want her to learn. I want to still teach and guide and train as a parent. That's my job. But I wait until we are in a better place. And then we'll yeah. debrief whatever happened and talk it through and mm -hmm. give perspectives on, on one way or the other. And then hopefully the lesson gets, yeah. gets learned. And usually in that situation when you do that, I am actually more perceptive to hearing and listening and being like, okay, I understand why that didn't work out. I understand where you're coming from. You can understand where I'm coming from. And it's actually a better way to work things out than in the heat of a moment. And yeah. you should do it my way and not your way. And she's super good at that. I'm, I'm blessed to have this daughter right here because there's been numerous times when we have fought, when we have been mad at each other, and we have that space that's kind of just hovering in the house. You can cut the tension with a knife, and she's off doing her thing. And 20 minutes later, she will come in to wherever I am at, mm -hmm. 
and she'll sit down and she'll and she will even though she's still cooking even though she's still having those feelings she will be able to take responsibility and go dad I know that my response was wrong I know that I didn't do something right and I'm sorry and and in that moment my heart as a father is bursting forth with we're, it's done. We're gone. We're, the relationship's there. It doesn't matter anymore. We are getting connected again. When she comes to me, and again, of her own volition, of her own choice, and says, I want to make things right again. There's no other moment that I'm, prob- that I'm more proud of this young woman right here than those moments, because she's learned responsibility and humility in all of that. It is, it's a good moment. It's, it's fantastic. It is fantastic. Um, If you had a chance to ask questions of a daughter about a father or a relationship, what questions would you want to ask her? I'll step away for a second. Yes, ma'am. Ooh, that's a really good question. Does, does, for those who couldn't hear, when I'm still trying to pursue her and I'm putting my arms around her and she's resistant to that, does it ever feel like I'm trying to manipulate her at that moment? No. I mean, I can't think of any times when it would feel like that. Even when I'm not in a spot where I want to accept comfort, his response when he comes to me, it's always genuine. It's never... I need to get what I want. Um, usually it doesn't even happen right away. It happens after, um, like, we fight, I'm angry, and I'm like, I'm angry at you, I don't want any of this. And, um, usually what happens is we fight, there is a period of cool down time, however long that is, we just spend some time separated from each other just to kind of get back into our own um, minds again, if that makes sense. And then usually after that, he comes to me, um, or I go to him, or either way. But it never feels manipulative, because I, I know he's genuine, and I know he's always um, very intentional in how he comes and how he approaches me. So it never actually feels manipulative. When that can feel manipulative, and I've heard this on multiple occasions, is when if I was coming to her to get my emotional needs met. It's four ways we can interact with, with other human beings. I can come to her, and I can put my arms around her, and I'm now taking something from her. Energy is coming towards me. I'm trying to get my needs met, okay? That's one direction. Second way is I can come to her, and I can do this, and I can actually put energy into her. I'm trying to offer comfort and care, not in a manipulative way, but in a legitimately, you have value and worth, and I want to make sure that you feel that, that we're still connected. The other two ways is she can come to me and say, Dad, I need something from you. She can take from me, or she can come to me and say, Dad, I want to offer something to you. Parents, parents. Your children are not placed on this earth to meet your emotional needs. I'll come down strongly and say that again. Children don't have the capacity nor the, the, nor the responsibility to meet your needs. And if I were to approach her saying, it's now your job to make me feel good, that would be highly manipulative and inappropriate. My heart is broken 
when I hear stories of, of parents who have been clearly abusive, dangerous, scary, inappropriate, and children who are, who are encouraged by the other parent to go, and after that, after that first parent has been highly dangerous and damaging, that child's job is to comfort that parent. That's backwards. That is, that is not right ever. And that leaves deep, deep scars. And you learn really dangerous lessons about how to relate to other people in the world who are especially are, are dangerous. So pay attention to how the energy works and what the expectations were. Does that make sense? Any other questions for this young woman who's filled with wisdom? Yes, please, real loud. What are three things, say that again, what are three things? Oh. What are three things I can do that makes it easier for you to trust me? Perfect. Good question. And I got another story to go with that. Three things. Pop quiz. Um. And if you can only come up with two, we'll let you get by with that. <laughs> Three things. Um, the number one thing that comes to mind is listening and responding appropriately. I don't know if that's the right word, but when I come to him with troubles or problems or even when I'm upset and I tell him this is how I'm feeling, you're doing something that you know I don't like, it's not working. Um, and he listens and he responds and he changes, um, whether it's actually changing whatever he's doing, whether it's talking it through and figuring it out because maybe my own perspective is, you know, not right, but that act of listening, um, and then not only listening, but responding accordingly, um, which just supports that he actually listens. So that's, that's a big thing um, to in inspire trust. Um, Fancy term for that would be validation. Thank you. Her yes. feelings matter. Yes. Um, being there in the hard times when I need him. There's been many times when um, something's going on. I can't think of a specific anything off the top of my head, but there's been times when I've just needed him, whether it's, um, you know, it's late and I need to be picked up from a friend's house, um, and I know he has work in the morning, but he still comes and gets me. Um, or if it's, you know, emotionally I'm struggling through something and I just need someone to talk it out with, he's there and he's listening. Um, or you know any other number of things. He is there for me, and I know I can come to him and call him and talk to him about anything. I mean, literally anything. Um, and he doesn't ever push that aside or um, ignore it. He doesn't say, oh, I'm too busy for you. Um, you'll have to come back at a time when it's convenient for me. A lot of the times he actually puts aside what he's doing. Um, 
and I always try and make sure it's not, you know, interrupting any business or anything that he's working on. But um, he is willing to put things aside for me when I do need him in situations like that. And that's a intentional choice that goes across everything. Um, as a counselor, I could have a lot more clients and, and support my family a lot better if I worked evening and weekend hours. Just that's a fact. That's when people are available. And that's what a lot of people want my schedule to be. And I very consciously choose to say, I'm not going to work those hours because I got four kids and I want them to know me and I want to be home with them and I want to be around them. And so if I'm going to be successful at something, I want to be a successful parent first and a successful counselor second. And so work is secondary. Money is secondary. I drive a 23-year-old car. Stuff is secondary because her heart my son's heart, my other son, I got two others, one, my 17-year-old son, his name's Sam, he looks me in the eye, 17 years old, and he's got 60, 60 pounds on me, he's a linebacker, he's huge, and he loves in ways that I, I can't imagine how kiddos love, and I just, I, I just, I love the heck out of him, because he's just wonderful, 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 I got good kids. How about one more, and then we'll kind of keep moving on, unless there's something that's really pressing. All right, we got two more. I was just wondering if you ever taught you how to play Calvin Ball. Ha! If I ever taught her how to play Calvin Ball. Yeah. Not specifically, but I've grown up with the comics, and we quote them back and forth to each other all the time, and yep. we do all sorts of other fun things together as a family. So. Yep. All you got to do is say Lundbox, and everyone knows what that Half means. Have a good day at school. That's, yeah. that's it, too. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes. What would you say to a woman who haven't, hasn't had parents who have done such a good job. There are some women in this group right now who are profoundly jealous. Yeah. And my heart breaks for them, truly breaks for them, because yeah. so. we don't get to have a do-over. What would you want to say to them? It's really hard, because there's, there's a lot of things that I'd like to say to them, but Find someone like my dad. Find someone you can connect with and relate with, even if they're not your own father, but someone who can step in and play that role. Um, find someone who can fill that role in your life. And yeah. yeah. I love my daughter with all of my heart. I think that she, it's going to break my heart when she leaves and is gone for almost a year. I'm not going to know what to do without her. But I am truly appreciative of, of how she's turned out and the quality woman that she is. Um, if you want to listen, again, we did this a while back. Um, oh, ha-ha, I didn't put it up there. How about that? There's supposed to be a slide right there that I didn't make. Um, 
we actually recorded some conversations several years ago called Daddy Daughter 101. DaddyDaughter101.com. You go there, and it's conversations like this about fathering and daughtering together. For some that might need to hear some of those perspectives and know what that sounds like, um, there's nine episodes on there. Technically, we recorded ten. I just haven't posted the last one because I forgot. So, um, for those who might want to hear more conversations like this, you can listen to us kind of talk to each other around some of that. Again, this is probably one of the more important things that I want women to hear, but also fathers to hear, parents to hear. Um, Thanks, kiddo. Appreciate you coming up. That's Michael. Um, there have been some people we've invited into our family to kind of just walk with them as a season. Not many. Um, I guard my time very, very carefully because I already got four kids, um, and that's enough. I mean, holy smokes. Four kids is uh, crazy. Um, but we have on occasion, um, had people that, I don't know why, um, have just kind of fit, and we've had a chance to walk with them through just different seasons of their lives. Not, again, not many. She stated it's kind of probably more than it sounds like. Um, I want you to hear very carefully. Please listen to this if you can. My daughter's and my relationship is not the gold standard. I don't want to put our relationship as the benchmark. We are flawed. I'm, I'm human. I screw up. I am not a perfect dad. She's not a perfect daughter. Um, so this is merely one example, okay? I, I want to be very, very clear with this. There are lots of relationships out there like this, who uh, parents who strive to be this kind of father to their children. I'm not the only one. But I also know that there are many in this room who this is an enigma. This is different. This is, this is a new concept. And so it just happens to be the example I know the best. And so I, I pulled it out um, as, as a way to kind of demonstrate the concept. Does that make sense? Are we, are we really clear on that? I don't want this to be the Paul and Michael show. Please don't do That's not. It's not a good show. So, Yes. Oh. Where did I learn the skills? Um, Jason. There's a short answer and a long answer. I'm trying to decide which way to go. Um, short answers from movies. I got a movie clip. Let's watch it. No. <laughs> uh, um, I learned a phrase poor people should take rich people out to lunch more often. Poor people should take rich people out to lunch more often. If you want to get good at a certain thing, find someone who's already good at that and do anything and everything you can to hang out with them. Annoy them, bug them, shadow them, all of that. I had the opportunity to um, do that with um, someone who taught me a lot 
about um, relationship, taught me a lot about counseling, taught me a lot about um, those kinds of things. Again, he wasn't a perfect person as well. Um, but he, at the time when I was newly married, he entered into my life and I had the opportunity to kind of shadow him. So I learned a lot from him. Um, I also learned a lot from my own story. I know what didn't work and I, whether it's a personality type or something else, but I said, I want to create a different environment than what I'm familiar with growing up. And so I strove, strived. I worked really hard to, to learn from my own stuff and to do my own work. That's probably one of the kindest things you can do as a, an adult is if you recognize your story is getting in the way or affecting your children, the kindest thing is to go sit with someone and do your own work and get, and, and get through those, those relational styles so you don't tend to repeat or pass on the cancer to the next generation. And I've already done that to some of my kids. I'm already telling them we're not doing a college fund, we're just doing a counseling fund for you so that when you get older, here's your therapy fund. Good luck with that, because you think it's hard being the kid of a counselor. Man, all sorts of stuff gets screwed up with that. Um, ducky bread. I told my kids when they were young, um, cornbread, it's yellow. And they said, Dad, what is cornbread made of? And I said, it's made up of ground up little baby ducks. Ducky bread. <laughs> they believed it, and it's been ducky bread ever since. Sad, sad things you do to your children. Um, so, find people who are already good at it. Do everything you can to be with them. Um, learn from your own story. Do your own work. There's more to that answer, but that is a starting point of some of that. Um, did I mention that I taught a class called Failure 101? That's where you also get okay with making mistakes and screwing up and saying, I want to do over, please. I want to just mess that one up. Can I practice again? One of the kindest things you can ever, 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 ever do to your children is, is apologize to them and ask them for, for forgiveness. You want to teach them a skill, teach them that. Because when I have messed up and I had to go down to my kids' bedrooms because they're already in bed, and I had to say, guys, I was wrong. What you did didn't warrant my response at all. I messed up, and I need to ask your forgiveness. I need to take responsibility for that. Kids are quick to forgive, and I actually am more thankful for the time that I screwed up and was able to ask for their forgiveness and being that perfect parent. So it becomes much, much easier when you don't have to be a perfect parent. But it's also much, much harder because you have to admit failure and struggle and all those kinds of things. Breathe. Take a breath, everybody. Okay? There we go. Um... Handouts, 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 handouts. Uh, anyone want to help me? Would you mind helping me real fast? Would you help me out real quick? Just get these to everybody. Um, angry at God, how to have a productive response. If my daughter's mad at me, there are certain things I, as a parent, want to do towards her, attitudes, feelings I have towards her. There's also certain things she needs to do towards me to have a productive response. Thank you so much for helping out with some of that. Um, and this handout kind of, again, uses the model of 
this human relationship to extrapolate out and say, when we're mad at God, when we're mad at our Heavenly Father, how should we respond to some of this? So I titled it, Angry at God, How to Have a Productive Response. These things need to be done, whether connecting with a human father or a heavenly father. Okay, I'll let some of those get out so you can have some notes here and connect with some of this. Number one, and you'll hear, you've probably heard some of this language in, in my daughter's and my conversation tonight, which is you have to approach God on an emotional level. Feelings matter. God built into us our emotional spectrum, and ignoring them is actually dangerous or detrimental and actually gets in the way. So my subjective feelings actually matter. So if you're mad at God, it's appropriate to show up and say, God, I am hurt. God, I'm scared. God, I'm frustrated. I'm confused. Being able to identify the emotion and just state it without having to apologize for it, without having to excuse it, without having to minimize it. If I as a heavenly father, if I as a heavenly father, wow, there's a mistake. Don't ignore that. If I as a human father am willing to listen to my daughter's emotions and subjective feelings, how much more so does a perfect heavenly father? Your feelings actually matter to him. He's not up there going, Suck it up, Nancy. Quit overreacting. And then when you're done whining and complaining, then we'll have a conversation. He says, you're, you're hurting and struggling. My heart's broken for you. I want to hear. I want to know. I want to step in and come next to you in that experience. I want to be with you in that. So identifying the emotion and accepting that it's there for a reason a lot of people go, I don't know why I'm feeling what I'm feeling. And because I can't explain it, because I can't tell you the origin of it, I'm not supposed to be feeling that. We, we, somehow we need to have permission to have a hurt feeling, and we need to be able to identify the cause of it. That's not how it works. Even in the physical realm, you can wake up one morning and go, man, my shoulder is just sore. And you're going, I don't, I don't know what I did to it. I don't know why, why does it hurt so bad. Well, until I figure out why it hurts, I'm not allowed to let my shoulder hurt. It doesn't work that way. It's going to hurt whether you know why or not. So why can't you do that emotionally? Huh, I woke up this morning and I'm feeling sad or I'm feeling frustrated. I don't know why, but I'm aware, I'm aware that it's there. Now that I'm aware that it's there, I can actually do something with it. I can, I can be aware of my behavior and how, to, how do I treat people and how I walk through the world. So learning how to identify your feelings. Secondly... Again, as we're approaching God, so you approach him on an emotional level. God, I have feelings. I'm mad at you right now. My daughter can say that to me. And it's like, thanks for telling me. Let's work this out. Secondly, physically, my body and my mind are connected. Again, the story of the guy throwing the thing and hitting my windshield. Instantaneously, the chemical bath that washed through my brain changed my physiological reaction. If you hooked me up to all the wires and the monitors, I would have been making spikes all over the place. And, and trying to separate that out, going, I need my body to relax. It's just not going to work. So it's okay to actually feel, physiologically, feel 
hurt, sad, frustrated at God. God, I got a stomachache. God, I've, uh, my mind's been distracted. God, um, I can't concentrate at work. God, I, um, uh, my back is sore, my shoulders hurt, or my neck, I got a crick in my neck. Becoming aware of and allowing your body to um, move through what it is experiencing. Um, and if you've never done that before, if that's new to you, hopefully some of the things we do early on at the beginning of each session in here, that's connecting your brain, your mind, and your physical body. Stand up. Pay attention to what it's feeling. Let your arms dangle. Pay, see if you can identify. Is it, is it an ache? Is it a sting? Is it a tingle? Is it hot? Is it cold? Is it moving? What does it look like? What color does it have? Add all of that language to it and actually become familiar and comfortable with your body. I know there's many, many people that because you have experienced unpleasant circumstances or experiences in your life, you actually do your best to separate yourself from your body. You do not want to continue to experience what you have been experiencing, and so your body actually scares you. And I want you to come back together. God gave you this physical body. We aren't, we aren't non-corporeal floating around as just essences and, and whiffs, wisps of smoke. We got stuff. We're made of cells. Um, personally, I have inherent value and worth to God and others. When you, when you approach God and say, yes, I'm mad at you. Yes, my body's feeling it. But I trust, I know that I still have inherent value even though I'm mad. Again, some of you might have learned the lesson from parenting, from experiences that if you're mad, go to your room and when you're all done, come back out and now you can be part of the family. And a child learns very quickly that they don't have much value and worth or their value and worth is dependent upon their behavior or their emotional state. And I want you to hear very, very carefully that personally you still have value even while you're mad before God and before others. My daughter, when she's mad at me, and even, even, even if her response behaviorally is completely and totally inappropriate towards me, I still am never, ever justified to treat her with a lack of respect or kindness or value. I have to operate within my own integrity. Operating within my own integrity says, even though you're doing something wrong towards me, I still don't have permission to do something wrong towards you. I will still treat you right, even if you're not treating me right. God's the best at that, by the way. He's really good at that. He made you. He knows how valuable you are. That never changes. So, don't lose that. Come to him with that mentality. Relationally, I'm designed to live in community and relationship. Disconnection brings loneliness. Man, when my daughter and I are fighting and we're disconnected, there's an ache, there's a tension, there's a, there's a hurt there because that's not how we're designed. We're supposed to be connected. We're supposed to be in community with each other. It's okay that I want to be connected to someone again. Did you know it's okay if my daughter and I are disconnected, that she can come and she can just go, I'm not ready to talk to you yet, but I want to be nearby. I've told the story in here before, but I don't know if, if this is your first time here. There was a, a, a time that my wife was at a, just at a, a meeting one night, and she, she's at the same meeting every night, on whatever night, let's pick up a night, Wednesday, and she's always home by 8.30, and the place that she's at, my microphone's driving me crazy, um, the place that she's at is five minutes from our house. Um, 
this night, five or 8.30 came and went, she's not there. I do what I do, call her, hey honey, where are you? Go straight to voicemail. 8.45, dial her again, honey, where are you? Just want to check in with you, go to the voicemail. 9 o'clock, 9.15, 9.30, I'm hearing nothing from her every 15 minutes. Honey, where are you? Honey, where are you? Honey, where are you? 9.45, 9.50, this is when my daughter was, I think, probably 9 or 10, not much more than that. I actually go get her out of bed and go, we got four, we got four little kids. I mean, my daughter's the oldest at 10, and I got, we don't have a car to pack all these in. My daughter's got the van, or my daughter, my wife has a van. What am I supposed to do? I'm thinking my, do, my wife is dead in a ditch somewhere, or she's been mugged. I mean, my brain is spinning out. And so I wake her up and go, kiddo, I need to go find mommy. I don't know where she is. Um, I'll be right back. Lock the door behind me. Get in the car, put it in gear, pull out. And just as I do, my phone rings. It's my wife. I only say four little words. Are you okay? Not even hello, not even hi. Are you okay? And she can hear the tension. She's seen that she's missed eight calls from me. And that very timid, yes. Are you coming home? Yes. Good. Hang up the phone, drive back in the driveway. Five minutes, she's home. She opens the door, and she opens the door with that little kind of, where is he? Because where's the volcano? She comes in. Honey, where have you been? I just got caught up talking with some friends. We were just having a really good time, completely lost track of time. My phone was turned off in my purse. So you're okay. You're fine. Yes. Okay, honey, right now I am so mad at you, I can't, I, I can't even talk to you. I am so mad at you right now, but you haven't done anything wrong. You, the, you, you haven't done anything wrong, but my fear is motivated by, my, my, my anger is motivated by my fear. I'm, I'm in this, again, this chemical bath that's washed over my body. What I need you to do is I need you to come sit on the couch with me while I'm really, really mad at you and hold my hand. It's a bizarre moment for about 45 minutes to sit with your wife when you're livid at her, but you still need relational connection and community. That's what we need. And after 45 minutes, the chemicals wash through my system, and then I can, I, my brain kicks back in. I go, okay, what happened? Next time, please give me a call. Yes, I'll do that, honey. That's one good example. I can give you 10 when I didn't do that good. Okay, so again, this is, but we're called in community even when we're not in a good place. And it's okay to desire that community and that relationship um, and, to, and to take steps to find it. The person that hurt me often has the greatest capacity to help me heal. Boy, I got to learn that with my wife so often. When I hurt her feelings, I have to also humble myself to say, now it's my responsibility to, responsibility to help heal those feelings. I'm not going to leave you alone in that. Again, that's a learned strategy a lot of couples do, which is, man, we're having a fight. I'm out of here. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to go drive. I'm going to go away for two days. And we, we lose the community. We lose the relationship. It's not productive. And then I'll be open to being hurt again by others. I will risk potential harm. And I'll try to live with joy and freedom in that. Spiritually, 
we approach God. I accept I have to live by faith in all areas of my life. That one's tough. God, I'm mad at you. God, I have these feelings. I, I, I'm hurt. I'm scared. My body's overwhelmed with this. I, I'm not sure I want to be close to you, but I'm going to try to be close to you. And now I have to give up control. I'm not going to pull a Lieutenant Dan. I'm not going to challenge you to prove yourself to me. And I'm definitely not going to pull a Salieri, which says, you're now my enemy. It says, I still choose to understand that you are God and I am not. And I will humble myself and I have to live by faith. And I have to believe a couple things in that. I'm not going to place my opinion above yours. I will not demand to be understood. We get to do that with, with my daughter and I. I can listen. I can, I can give her feedback in that moment and I can actually show her how I'm trying to understand her. It'd be nice if we could audibly hear from God all the time so we know that. But we have to live by faith that he actually understands us. In fact, probably chances are he understands us better than we know ourselves. Okay, scripture kind of talks about that. And so we can assume that he understands us already. And I'm going to trust that you are still good and I'm going to trust that you are still in control. Two very hard things to put yourself into when you're mad at someone. I trust that you're still good, that you have your, my best interest in mind still. And then behaviorally, I am responsible. I am responsible. Just because I'm mad, just because my daughter's mad at me, doesn't give her license or permission to do whatever the hell she wants to do. It just doesn't work that way. She still is responsible. She can choose how she responds to me. She can choose how she responds to her brother. She doesn't have permission to go kick the dog or to, to go numb out chemically in some way or to behave poorly. She can still choose her response just like I am responsible. I am mad at God and I will still make healthy decisions and maintain healthy behaviors. That is, that is what we're called to do. For some of you who have been mad at God or may be mad at God, consider the fact that if you haven't had a whole lot of practice wrestling it out and working out conflict on the human level, it might be hard to do that on the, on the heavenly level as well. Conflict resolution is a learned skill. It takes practice. And if you haven't had a chance to practice it, then it's going to be harder. But out of those three options, making an enemy challenging or wrestling it out and being uncomfortable for a little while, I'm going to suggest that the third option has a much greater sustainable long-term option for you and produces long-term growth and change that is healthy and good and actually truly comforting comforting so if you haven't ever had a practice with this if you if you are mad at god and you say i need some practice with this i got to work this out just like when i am not available for my daughter sometimes she goes to my wife and she goes i'm really really mad at dad he's been a jerk and my wife steps into that role when I can't step into that. Tell me about it, kiddo. Yep, I hear you. I understand. She puts her arms around my daughter. There are people in this room who can practice or take that substitutionary role for you. There are pastoral staff who are willing to wrestle with you as you ask the really, really, really hard questions. 
and they'll say, let's work this out together. And it might not be a one-time conversation. It might be a 10-time conversation. There are counselors out there who will be willing to help you wrestle through some of these things. There are people sitting in the same pew here as you that you get to walk through the next year and in refuge with. And you can come in and say, this stuff that Paul's talking about, I'm not sure I get it because here's my story and it really feels like God abandoned me. And there are people in the room here will go, tell me more about that. Let's, let's hear your story. And you can go through these, these six steps right there. How does it feel? What's going on? What's your body? How's your body? How are you responding to it behaviorally? What's, do you trust that God still has your best interest in mind? They can walk you through that. I'm, I only get to be with you for a short time during the summer, but these people here get to walk with you for a season. And you're very fortunate. You're very lucky. We could spend the entire next time just listening to stories of how each other in this room has have been able to work things out with each other. So I'm actually glad I get to hand you off to other people because there's some very good people in this room who will love on you well if you'll stop doing this. And when they approach you, you soften and you learn how to receive. Sometimes that's the hardest point. That's the hardest part of this entire process it's scary and there's no guarantees and sometimes it feels like you're being manipulated <sighs> one or two questions and then go away <sighs> yes please real loud yep Yep. Yeah. What do you do with a parent or as a parent when you have a child who is struggling with addiction issues and not making good choices? Um, I would do what God does, which is he says, I love you unconditionally and I want what's best for you. And what's best for you isn't always condoning the behavior you do. And until you take responsibility for your behaviors, I'm not going to enter into your life that actually enables or um, actually encourages you to continue in those behaviors. And I'm going to let you experience the consequences of your own choices. That's one of the things that's most confusing about God. God is, is up there saying, I truly ache for every human being to come have relationship with me. I want that with all of my heart, but I will not make you. You have to choose it. You have to accept my love. And there are some people who go, nah, I'm going to do it my way. I'm not going to do it with your help. And he goes, please, I want to be in relationship with you. And they go, I will not do it. And so he says, the offer is still there, but I also allow you to make choices which are long-term, damaging, detrimental. So, more specific answer. It's usually best to take that on a case-by-case -case basis, usually with some sort of person who has some sort of expertise in whatever addiction they're wrestling with, so you can determine how much is appropriate healthy and how much is now enabling and promoting the bad behavior or, or contributing to them continuing in that bad behavior. So 
getting a little bit of help. And again, there's, you don't, it doesn't always have to be a counselor. It can be pastoral staff. There's, again, a lot of people here who have a lot of experience in addiction stuff. You can get clarity around some of those things. But very, very good question. And probably one of the harder questions because there isn't one clear line that says, in this situation, do this. In this situation, do this. And just flip to page 32 and it'll tell you exactly what to do. It just doesn't exist. So good question. Let's do one more and then I'll let you go away. Yes, please. Yes. Yes. Ah. Ah. Children aren't supposed to meet um, my emotional needs, but is my spouse supposed to meet my emotional needs? I really want to do uh, a, a marriage class. Would that be fun? I have all sorts of good stuff around couples and marriage stuff, and we talk some, about some of that. Um, there's a difference. Here's, here's a primary difference. Um, children are inherently powerless because they are literally little kids, children, four, five, six, even eight, 10, 13. They don't, power is inequitable. They can't, they, they don't have the same resources. So if I get mad, I can move to another state, another city, and still put a roof over my head, put food on the table, get a job, and, and provide for myself. Um, adults have the capacity to do that, generally. So between my spouse and myself, my wife and I, if she's mad, that mad at me, she has the same power. She can also meet her needs, provide for herself, and we can relate on an adult to an adult level at an at a, at a equitable power level. Children can't do that. Children end up having to tolerate whatever situations are put in, and because of that, uh, the rules are different. Um, we cannot expect them to respond in certain ways, um, and it is actually our job as parents to meet their needs, not for them to meet our needs. Because again, we have the resources, they do not. Now, I want you to hear very clearly from me, it's a limited time gig. My daughter's 21. I still provide for her and help her in certain ways, but I have been working my butt off to get her out of the house and on her own and making her own decisions. It would be inappropriate for me to go to my father and say, even though I got a wife and four kids at home, I expect you, Dad, to take care of me now because I'm an adult. I'm, I'm response-able. I'm supposed to um, take responsibility for my life, and it's no, my parents' job is done. They've, they've done their job. They're free. They can now take vacations and, and not have to not worry about me. So... Parenting is a limited type gig, and we're supposed to work ourselves out of a job. Does that make sense? Now, I can enter into a relationship with another human being, another adult, where we say, I, I want you, and I'm here, and I want to learn about you, I want to know you, so that I can connect with you, we can be in community, and I can meet your needs, not because you need me, but because it's an opportunity to minister to you. It's a, it's a chance for me to serve you. And if I happen to be married to a wife who says, oh yeah, you're not going to outdo me. I'm going to serve you first. Then it just gets good. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like more information, please visit paulelmore.com.